You're listening to How to Stan, the podcast all about both specific fandoms and fandom culture as a whole. For more information about the show and the other show that I do, 17 Karat K-Pop, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. You can also go to 17karatkpop.weebly.com backslash how to stand for more specific information about this podcast. Enjoy the show! In today's toy-themed episode of How to Stand, we are going to go through the timeline of Barbie and Mattel. How Barbie got her roots, really the complicated legacy that she's been leaving behind and why that is the case, her mega long-term feud, legally and otherwise, with Bratz dolls, the role of some interesting side characters in Mattel's journey, a lot of interesting twists and turns in the story of Barbie and Mattel. And then I have a story about Cabbage Patch Kids and the frenzy that developed over them. And then we'll pick up this conversation with more stories about toys in the coming weeks, so stay tuned for those. To better understand Barbie, it helps to understand Mattel and how the company was created. Mattel Creations, its original name, was established in 1945. It's primarily remembered in history as being started by Ruth and Elliot Handler, but it was also actually started with by Harold Matson, who joined the duo for a brief period of time, but he shortly exited the project due to health issues, but he was part of creating Mattel. But primarily who's remembered as driving Mattel's evolution in the early days are Ruth and Elliot Handler. The Handler started making picture frames before dolls, actually, and they weren't making money, so they moved on to adding doll furniture into their repertoire. They couldn't just stay making doll furniture and picture frames, though they would have lost money if they had done that. So to truly bring home profits, they decided to add to their catalog two items that became bestsellers. The Birdie Bank and this thing they called the Make Believe Makeup Set, which is pretty self-explanatory. And the makeup set and the bank that they started selling really helped bring in more income for them. Then they had their first big, big hit in 1947 with the Yuka Doodle, which was basically a kid's ukulele toy. And they kept up with the instrument trend in 1948 by creating a toy piano. Although they lost 10 cents for every toy piano they sold due to quality issues, they continued to try to make them. But again, they had to expand their catalog because this wasn't cutting it financially for them. They were helped along a bit throughout their early years by the baby boom, because there were a lot more kids around to sell toys to and to make toys for, but they still needed to do something else to generate a net profit. A lot happened in 1955, which is the next key year to discuss. First of all, Mattel became the sponsor of the Mickey Mouse Club show. This was a $500,000 deal signed only for a year-long partnership, which eventually got expanded, but at first it was just for a year, and the deal's value at $500,000 actually equaled Mattel's net worth at the time. So they really were investing it all in this Mickey Mouse Club partnership, and luckily it paid off for them. The most interesting character to me in this story enters the picture in 1955 as well, this guy named Jack Ryan. He actually formerly worked for a U.S. defense contractor and helped design a missile for them. Fun fact. But after that, he ended up getting into this toy business. He became the Mattel head of research and development. And he basically signed this early deal with the handlers that guaranteed Jack 
would get a percent of the profits for every toy that Mattel sold that Jack had had a hand in creating. So basically he could find a way to argue that he deserved a percent of the profit from every single Mattel toy sold. In some way, shape, or form, he could claim he helped create it. This was a 1.5% royalty agreement. And Jack, thanks to this early deal he made before Mattel was the absolute juggernaut it is today, helped him get rich long term. So then Jack ended up living in this Bel Air mansion, complete with his own version of a dungeon in it. He was a weird dude, but he basically lived the high life thanks to the sweet deal he cut in the early days of Mattel. In 1937, Mattel released these toy guns and holsters that were inspired by popular westerns at the time which was just one of the many examples of Mattel really being of the time, really keeping itself ahead of the trend and just along with whatever current direction they saw media popularity focused, Mattel would also follow suit and basically reply to whatever was popular in the media at the moment by making a toy that corresponded with it, which helped toy sales spike every time they did that. In 1959, Barbie made her first public debut to the world. At just $3 a doll, she was available at the New York Toy Fair. And this event was really, it really says a lot about society more broadly because Ruth Handler really had to fight to get her colleagues to let her try to market Barbie at this event. They were nervous that it wouldn't go over well. They were a little right because Barbie wasn't exactly an overnight success. It was hard because Ruth was a woman in a man's world in business and marketing. She was trying to sell this Barbie doll while she was among all these buyers and sellers who were primarily, if not entirely, male. And parents initially disliked Barbie as well. It wasn't just the salesmen. They didn't really get the appeal or why they would buy their kids a Barbie doll. And what's interesting is that what won them over was when they realized that Barbie could inspire their girls. And not in the way that you would hope or think. It wasn't a female empowerment thing at first. Like, oh, Barbie is going to teach our girls to feel confident and happy and all of that stuff. It was really, what they saw in Barbie was the ability to convince their girls that it was important to care about what they look like. And that was very important because they wanted to make sure their girls looked suitable for men and would find good husbands. Yes, there's a lot of heteronormative assumptions to unpack here as well, but first let's address just the fact that these of these parents' ideology emphasized the importance of their kids looking good and physically attractive to potential mates. So they realized that Barbie could inspire their girls to stay groomed, to keep their hair well done, outfits looking nice, all of that. Also keep in mind that this was the 50s when marrying men, again, which is was the default assumption that all women would marry men, was viewed as critical for financial stability because, well, at least more so than it was today, it was viewed as you needed to marry someone who would go to work, the men would go to work. A lot of old, old assumptions were, were just the way it was back then really helped win parents over was the wedding Barbie commercial. When sales suddenly really spiked for Barbie afterwards, it just made parents feel like this doll looks like she really can be a good influence on getting my daughter to get excited about growing up and becoming a mother and a wife. The 1960s were huge for Mattel. In 1960, they went public and they also released a new hit doll called Shaddy Kathy. In 1961, per fans' demand, they made a Ken doll so Barbie could have a boyfriend. 
In 62, the Barbie dream house made its debut so that they could have a home to live in together. A lot of the progression of Barbie's world and the toys that were made for it went with the way they expected their lives to go as women. Well, if she, she needs a boy, and then she needs to marry him and move into a house together, and that's how it went. In 63, Mattel got an official New York Stock Exchange listing as opposed to just being a public company, and the sales reached a new high of $26 million that year, which was the year after the Barbie Dream House had started being sold. In 1965, Mattel sales rose to over $100 million, that was also the year that Miss Astronaut Barbie debuted, which may sound like it was a special empowering thing, but again, it was actually because the company felt obligated to release this because Astronaut Ken had also come out as a toy. So they felt like they needed Barbie to also dress up and go to the moon with him or whatever. In 1968, Mattel music box sales surpassed $50 million for its lifetime at Mattel. Over 50 million music boxes had been sold by this point, but they continued to expand their catalog. That was the year Hot Wheels debuted. It was also when the first black Barbie doll named Christy w debuted. And by this year, the Barbie fan clubs had really started sprouting up. And by the end of that year, the Barbie fan club membership had surpassed 1.5 million people globally. And keep in mind, this was the 60s. It wasn't like the social media era we currently live in. So for fans to coordinate and join fan clubs then was always a feat, let alone over a million. The 1970s brought a superstar Barbie who had these retro disco looks, as well as sports-era Barbies, and that was also when Mattel bought out more and more companies. It kept focusing simultaneously on selling more Barbies, but also growing and buying up even more companies. Mattel bought the Ringling Brothers, as well as Barnum & Bailey Circus in the 70s. In 73, Surgeon Barbie made her debut, but that, again, may seem like a nice, empowering thing to show women can be surgeons, but it's not like it really helped the company much because that same year they reported a $32 million loss, just three weeks actually after they had made stockholders believe the company was doing super well financially. This was when things came to unravel with Mattel's relationship with stockholders and their deception. When the Security and Exchange Commission opened up an investigation into Mattel, assuming they had some shady business dealings going on, Ruth Handler and the executive VP and chief financial officer at the time, Seymour Rosenberg, pleaded no contest to these charges in federal district court. In 74, the handlers were ousted after being pressured by banks to resign, and Rosenberg was fired. The court then ordered Mattel to completely restructure its board, and Handler and Rosenberg each got a $57,000 fine, along with a 41-year suspended sentence, which would totally be suspended as long as they get engaged in 500 hours of community service each, every year for five years. 500 hours each year for five years, each of them, along with the $57,000 fine and the required board restructuring. This is when Jack comes back into the story because he sued, claiming that now, thanks to this re board restructuring, he was no longer being paid by the handlers what he was owed due to that early days royalty agreement he had signed. That legal case dragged on for five years, and in the meantime, Jack's drinking habit worsened. He ended up moving out of his Bel Air mansion and ended up moving to a Westwood $400 a month apartment. He was really down on his luck by this point, and eventually he did end up winning the lawsuit, though.
1975, Barbie sales had grown stagnant, which is okay for a company, but obviously not ideal. They always want more and more growth, and so they needed to make some changes. But that was extra hard because Ruth, who had been such a backbone of the company, had resigned due to all the financial investigations and everything and the the lawsuits brought forth by stockholders. So men ended up running Barbie at the time. And they were not exactly good at it. They came up with a lot of ideas for Barbie while they were just this boys club. And it wasn't really selling well. For example, they created this growing up Skipper doll where if you twisted her arm a certain direction, it would make her boobs grow bigger or smaller. It flopped. No one wanted to buy that and we're a little weirded out by it. So they weren't exactly making hit toys. In 1983, Mattel tried breaking into the video game market, but flopped in that direction and entered the brink of bankruptcy. It was saved last minute by a New York venture capital firm, but it really was on the brink of losing everything it needed. Needed a woman to come back and take charge, I would argue. But Barbie stuck around thanks to that venture capital payment that helped them survive for the next few years when in 1985, CEO Barbie debuted, and Barbie also collaborated with Oscar de la Renta for the very first time, which would become an ongoing partnership. In 1987, John W. Ammerman was named the chairman of Mattel, and he decided to take over and rebrand this company. He wanted to focus more on the bestsellers like Barbie, the toys Mattel had become known for. If you think of Mattel, you probably think of Barbie or Hot Wheels right away. So he wanted to focus on the bestsellers and stop what they were doing, which was trying to focus on video games and entering other new markets. He was not successful, at least comparatively, either, being in charge. He helped create this Masters of the Universe toy line that ended up flopping, and Mattel's stock in 1987 dropped from $30 a share to $10 a share. Mattel did get its next big break in 1988 when it revived its collaboration with Disney, and now and forevermore they can make Disney Princess Barbie dolls and all of that, for example. And in 1989, the Smithsonian Magazine cover went to Barbie to honor her 30th birthday. So despite some marketing hiccups, by 1991, the estimate was that 95% of girls in the USA, ages 3 to 11, had more than one Barbie doll at the time, which I can attest for, although I was born in the later 90s, I had way more than one, and everyone I knew did as well. This was something that people weren't just buying one of to look at. People wanted to buy more than one to play with. In that year, Barbie was responsible for half of Mattel's sales, which that year were $1.85 billion. So half of Mattel's $1.85 billion in sales were all thanks to Barbie. This is also the year where Jack suffered a stroke and later on his life had been permanently altered and he couldn't take it anymore and took his own life. Ruth eventually stopped talking about Jack and so over time in the public consciousness she kind of seemed to end up erasing whether it was intentional or not his contributions to the Barbie brand in the minds of the public. People don't really remember Jack Ryan, they just remember Ruth Handler. In 1992, President Barbie debuted, so they continued to try to push this image of a girl boss Barbie, essentially. And in 93, Mattel continued to acquire companies like Fisher-Price, the makers of Little People. 
In 94, Mattel acquired the company that makes Scrabble, the company that makes Frisbees, Hula Hoops, Power Wheels. Their net sales that year were $4 billion, and they had a net income of $225 million. In 1995, their net income reached $338 million, with net sales of $4.4 billion. And Mattel and Hasbro started talking about possibly merging, which was a $5.2 billion offer that Hasbro eventually turned down, but they had discussed it at the time. In 96, Mattel sales reached $4.5 billion with an income of over $372 million. And Mattel acquired Tyco Toys, the third largest toy manufacturer in the USA that makes Sesame Street toys and things like that. Tyco Toys, which makes the Sesame Street stuff, and Mattel completed a merger in 1997. This was the same year that a woman was finally back in charge as a CEO of Mattel, Jill Barad. Her first order of business was to bring Ruth Handler back. Ruth was at first shamed and left the company due to that shame, but now she was welcomed back with open arms. People had missed her. People just knew no one could compare to her vision, and they just wanted her back to help the company succeed succeed like it had before, just in terms of ideology. And overall, just her impact was missed. And so Ruth was welcomed back with open arms and worked with Jill to revive this company in the ways that it still needed reviving, even though it was doing well financially. Again, ideologically, they wanted to go back to Ruth's mindset. It's worth noting that Jill Barad took charge when she was one of the only Fortune 500 company female CEOs, and her sharp decision-making is what allowed for Mattel to gain a 35% increase in sales in Latin America, and it also helped Mattel open up a totally new, for them, Japanese market. 1998, Mattel was named one of Forbes' 100 best workplaces to work at for the way it treated its workers, for the company values that you could sense in the atmosphere, all of that. This was also the year where Barbie came out with a new website, WNBA Barbie came out, and Mattel acquired Pleasant Company for $715 million. Pleasant Company are most well known for making American Girl dolls. And Pleasant Rowland, that's, yes, his actual name, Pleasant Rowland, the company's founder, became the vice chairman of Mattel. Mattel continued to own more and more of the beloved toys we grew up with into 1999. They bought the Learning Company for $3.5 billion. They make things like Carmen Sandiego and Reader Rabbit. Mattel also formed a partnership that year with Bandai, the company that is the largest toy maker in Japan, actually, and made Power Rangers, Tamagotchi, all of that. So that was a continued success for them. Obviously, the Power Rangers are still so relevant to kids today, but the learning company part actually didn't help the deal much. Before the deal could even be finalized, the learning company started having a net loss unexpectedly, and 3,000 jobs were cut. So you had another bump in the road for them. But in 2000, the learning company-related debt was paid off, at least in part, by Mattel's $500 million in profits, The net loss that year, though, was still terrible at over $430 million. Mattel's stock had dropped to $10 a share by then, and this was not going well, this learning company acquirement. Jill Barad unexpectedly resigned at this time. She was replaced by the former head, actually, of Kraft Foods, Robert A. Eckert, who became chairman and CEO in May. And then they actually started getting some new partnerships that worked out and still do, Nickelodeon licensing rights, for example, so they can make Spongebob-themed doll clothes and things like that, and Warner Brothers, so they can make Harry Potter-themed toys. 
2001 is when the gloves were off because that is when we started really seeing the feud form between Bratz dolls and Barbie. So we're going to get back to that in a minute. In 2001 also, Barbie movies first started to come out, which was part of Eckert's new focus for the company. He said, okay, first we tried expanding products. Then we had a CEO who focused us on selling the bestsellers we had become known for. Then we moved our focus again. Now, with me in charge, where I'm going to just make sure that our variety is back to increasing. So first it was getting your hand in all sorts of different pots. Then it was temporarily taking your hand out of every pot, and now it's putting them back in. And so what he was doing was trying to see if Barbie movies would be successful. They sure were. Barbie Nutcracker was the first one, but after that we've had Barbie and the Twelve Dancing Princesses, Barbie and the Princess and the Pauper, and actually that one is still as a life online with memes and stuff with the I'm just like you sinning scene that's from Barbie, Princess, and the Pauper. So people have really memed it and just made it their own and kept it relevant. Another bump in the road happened in 2002 when Mattel had to reach a settlement with those shareholders that had sued years earlier. They ended up paying $122 million in this suit, and that was also the year that Ruth Handler happened to pass away. The Hasbro team was especially in a slump, so they sent a team across the USA to have focus groups and figure out what kids were into lately, and they were behind the times in any way. What they ultimately learned were a few things. One was that... Kids really loved when a movie or TV show they saw had a toy to accompany it. They really, really loved that. And so Hasbro teamed up with Discovery Channel to launch that network called The Hub that started the My Little Pony shows. I believe Littlest Pet Shop might have been a show. They've had shows for their different toys. And in 2007, Hasbro co-produced the Transformers movie that ended up making $710 million worldwide. They also opened a film studio in Burbank and made three more of those Transformers movies. And with every new Transformers movie that came out, toy sales for them doubled. Hasbro also sent toy designers to the movie set of those Transformers movies to make sure along the process of creating the characters for the movie that they could still be made easily into toys. 2012 was yet another down on this ups and downs roller coaster of Barbie where suddenly Barbie's reputation was being viewed as more sacred than ever. People treated her as the golden goose of the company. They really were worried about launching any Barbie-related product now because they were worried about staining the reputation of their crown jewel. But they had to do something because the sales of Barbie were falling again, and so Netflix launched Barbie in Her Dream House, a new TV show. Barbie also adapted to the times in 2015 by starting her YouTube vlog, which actually is pretty in insightful in ways, frankly. It's not just her talking about hair and makeup and all the stuff people traditionally associate with Barbie. She talks about real-world issues, she talks about the importance of kindness and other key values that all people, regardless of gender, should follow in life. She shares life advice, she vents to her viewers' diary entry style through these vlogs. She's really quite the influencer, and not in a bad way, as much as she may have been in the past. Barbie now has over 1.2 million Instagram followers, and there's also a separate Barbie-themed fashion account, though, that has over 2 million, so that is interesting and telling that the fashion account has a lot more followers than the just insightful venting account. But anyway, now over 18 billion minutes of user-generated Barbie fan content are being made online every single year. And Barbie continues to not just thrive online 
reputation-wise, but also in real life. For example, in 2014, the designer Jeremy Scott had this Barbie-themed Moschino fashion show, where the entire fashion show was Mattel and Barbie-inspired. So she continues to influence simultaneously the minds of people, as well as how they dress and look. Let's step back now and unpack Barbie's complicated legacy. First of all, we have to talk about the fact that she really did value physical appearance, and body image concerns have been repeatedly raised by parents and by people who just loved Barbie and grew up with Barbie. Barbie did have a lot of facelifts, I guess you could say, over the lifespan of the doll so far. Her first makeover was actually to give her what they viewed as a more innocent look. Barbie used to actually have this timid side eye, that was her look, like she always kind of looked off to the side a little bit. And so it was actually kind of a shock when suddenly Malibu Barbie came out and she had eyes facing right at you front and center. That directness was a bit shocking to people who had been used to dolls looking as demure as they come. It's also notable that the best-selling Barbie of all time is the Totally Hair Barbie, which has hair to her feet. Finally, 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 just a few years ago, Barbie did have body diversity showing, where you could see Barbie dolls of all shapes and figures and sizes together, and they weren't just side characters. Like I said, back in the 60s, Barbie did have a black doll friend, but that was it. She was the black friend. She was the side doll that some people might want to buy. Now, finally, a long last Barbie had, you could buy a black Barbie that wasn't Barbie's friend. It was just another Barbie. And so it's been a lot more mainstreamed and normalized for Barbie doll collectors and Barbie doll just users and people who enjoy playing with Barbies to just play with a diverse array of Barbies of all races, of all fashion senses, of all body types. And so it really was a long time coming. But finally, they did that and they had an overwhelmingly positive response. What cannot be entirely disentangled from the conversation about Barbie's impact on people's body image of themselves and what should be a normal body, we cannot fully disentangle the aspects of Barbie and what she taught people about what it means to be a girl boss, to be a, to experience girl power and the sense of female empowerment that is through a very specific lens. There have been dolls in the past, for example, like the Math is Tough Barbie, who literally the Barbie doll said Math is Tough, and that was her thing. She got a lot of backlash and didn't sell great, but still, the fact that it was made is concerning. A lot of other stereotypes about girls and what they're good or not good at were at play over time, and of course the sense that Barbie had to be there just because there was a male version. So the question really was always with them, Well, if a male doll can do this, so can a female Barbie doll. That's why we had Astronaut Barbie come along with Astronaut Ken, for example. But it was never just Barbie wants to be an astronaut. It was always in concert with another male character. Barbie wouldn't have just had a bunch of different careers without some other element being tied to the reason why they made that doll, if that makes sense. Basically, they were trying to create a doll for a an internalized misogyny-laden world, and so that was difficult because that does not come out with the perfect solutions, of course, for how you want to present women because then it's always in relation to something else. They had to break glass ceilings that I wish they didn't have to break, basically. It's also notable that Barbie's image is rooted in this sexualized historic image where the Handler family, Ruth's family, was vacationing in Sweden when a specific doll caught Ruth's eye that became the inspiration for what Barbie looked like originally. 
and this doll that caught her eye, whether she knew it or not, was actually a doll from this R-rated comic in Germany. It was from this National Enquirer-type German newspaper, and she was kind of like a cheerleader doll, an icon of sorts for the German military, viewed as like a motivator cheerleader cartoon of sorts. Anyway, so her look and her role for society was kind of used to shape who Barbie became overseas. Ultimately, Ruth created Barbie because she wanted to give girls more variety to play with. She had seen her girls play with paper dolls and stuff, and she thought that was tiring and wanted something new for them. And she did want to help make Barbie a tool, really. So she didn't intend for girls to just totally idolize Barbie and try to be like her, but just use Barbie as a blank canvas of sorts to dress how they wanted, to act out whatever they wanted, just a role, a tool for them to express themselves and use their imaginations. And the ways Mattel has always blended classic and modernized ideas kind of goes into that, that they're always trying to be innovative in a way that puts a lot of power in users' hands to make the toy whatever they want that's relevant for them at the time. The Handler's unique brand of Music Box actually was very unique and sold more than copycat Music Boxes at the time because it only played music after the owner turned to crank, which was abnormal for the time. And they also were able to sell more because they had a large supply to sell in the first place. The mass production kept the prices low. So anyway, it's a mix of technical know-how about how the marketing should work and the actual production process mixed with actual just insight into what people would want that's fresh and new to them. And it adds a little something different to what they're doing in a way that makes users feel like they are controlling it. If you're cranking the music box, you get to control when the music plays. And that just... Those little details subconsciously actually do add up to make the user experience better. The handlers also noted that the power of music was a key detail to keep fans interested in a toy. And so the two main takeaways they got from their music box sales were that, first of all, kids really love hands-on toys that they get to control and interact with more actively. And second of all, kids want a toy that is meant for long-term enjoyment, not their short attention span. So obviously Barbie's legacy is not all positive because of the ways that she may have led some people to feel like their bodies and their skin color, their size was not normalized when it should have been. They didn't see themselves represented in the toys they got to play with and instead in order to get a toy that looked like them these girls would have to get the other toy, the sidekick toy, the best friend toy that didn't come with as much promotion, as much as many accessories, all of that, as much backstory. So it was just lacking in a lot of ways over time, as well as the fact that Barbie, the most well-selling Barbie of all time is still that long hair Barbie. That is just interesting and telling that it's not like the CEO Barbie or something that's more ideological. It's just about the hair. But Barbie itself has also really helped tap into so much imaginative play and the spectacular, the out of the ordinary. Mattel's Disney Princess line is a big way to do that, and Mattel has actually been the go-to for those Disney Princess dolls since 96, and continues to go strong with that. It's also found ways to help fans interact with the world and learn things, not just about, like, dolls helping you act out like what a teacher would do, for example, but also... There are, like, CD-ROMs that you can get. I, when I was younger, had a Barbie laptop with just Barbie games on it. And that helped with learning Spanish, phonics, math. It was actually quite an educational, fun tool that I would be occupied with for hours. 
So Barbie has always tried to find a way to teach kids and how to be better people and how to just grow intellectually. Barbie CD-ROM sales actually at one point reached $20 million, so it was successful to focus on her brains and not just her body. So to sum it up, while some argue that Barbie really was this very specific corporate type of girl boss feminism where she just was just a woman making it through the ranks in a, ma in a man's world, Others would argue that actually Barbie was a great positive tool who broadened how girls think about what women can do in a woman's world and rebranding that entirely. And what is important here that helps account for both perspectives on Barbie's impact is the fact that we are in a materialism-focused society, and it's always about that expansion of ideas, that expansion of sales. And so at the end of the day, they're trying to sell you Barbie. So they're tapping into the cultural moment, yes, and so there are some underlying issues sometimes with the way they do that. Oh, let's make a, a CEO Barbie because fierce, inspiring Barbies to these girls are popular right now, as opposed to let's do that so that girls can see themselves and see that it's okay for girls to want to become CEOs. So the actual intention behind their actions is usually not as moral as we'd like to think. But the unintended, possibly, consequences of what they do are worth noting and can be very positive on who girls like to look up to. Barbie as the symbol of always wanting more from a materialist culture was actually an exacerbated view in other countries. For example, Russia has always perceived Barbie as the ultimate sign of the woes of capitalism, basically saying, this is actually a very famous phrase in Russia, they say, quote, if you have a Barbie, bury her under McDonald's. Let the devil take what already belongs to him. So they are not exactly warm to Barbie. Barbie has represented to them the evils of this modern consumerist culture, the way that people just want to buy the next Barbie just because she's got a new hat, as they said on The Simpsons, or because she's got a new pair of shoes, or a new this or that. And it's just a way to fuel superficial values about quantifying your success, really. I got this amount of Barbies, as opposed to I did this with my career, or whatever. They viewed it as distracting kids in the wrong directions. To kids in Russia, though, they viewed it differently. They viewed her as always a really special character who represented freedom of expression and, again, tapping into that imagination and letting them act out who they wish they could be or felt maybe like they couldn't be in the moment, but at least they could make their Barbie acted out for them. Barbie wasn't even allowed in the USSR at first. Only people who had seen Barbie in person while traveling abroad knew about her. But those people who had traveled abroad and seen Barbie brought back their stories to the USSR at the time and described Barbie and really got the hype up early and kept up the curiosity about this magical doll who could be anything you want that was overseas. There was a lot of Russian propaganda, though, where parents were shamed out of buying their kids things like Barbies. It was already a financially difficult time in the country, and so they were encouraged to spend their money on more quote-unquote practical needs. But Russian kids remained in awe over Barbie's beauty, especially compared to how their traditional dolls looked. She was viewed as just way more beautiful than their dolls were. So again, it's interesting because you cannot disentangle the negative from the positive ways Barbie can be perceived. Because all at once, she was perceived as this stunning beauty, and that's why they wanted her, just to look at her, really. But she also had the potential for them to play with her and unlaunch their creativity and what they thought was possible for themselves. Barbie is now available throughout Russia, actually, but the career Barbies, like the CEO Barbie and teacher Barbie, don't actually sell very well there. So again, adding to that thought that 
they've basically ironically learned through advertising for Barbie that Barbie is a negative influence and that advertising has ironically led Barbie to be a bigger negative influence because it's focusing on just buying a Barbie so you can look at its beauty, not play with it. The collapse of the USSR led to loosened import restrictions in Russia, which really triggered this rapid transformation into a much more consumerist society that had originally been so taboo to lean into. And so Barbie is more accepted there now, but I don't think that image has ever truly gone away. There's still sort of a stigma of sorts of playing with a Barbie there, depending on why you want to play with the Barbie. So Barbie has divided people, not just on the body image debate, but also debates about her actual cultural symbolism internationally. There's one other way where Barbie has divided fans, and that was actually among age lines in how they wanted to perceive themselves in terms of maturity. Because the rise of Bratz in the early 2000s was very scary to Barbie. Mattel had really gotten into the habit of buying out a bunch of other toys and companies and being the boss in the toy industry. And so when Bratz came around from MGA, that was suddenly not okay. They felt very threatened by the presence and sales of Bratz dolls. What makes this saga more dramatic is the fact that Carter Bryant, one of the designers of Bratz, was employed at Mattel, who makes Barbie, when he designed the Bratz. This timeline, because he had been employed at Mattel when he helped create Bratz, that's what triggered an eventual legal battle, but we'll get back to that. Bratz had taken 40% of fashion doll profits within the first four years of its public debut. The ultimate image perception that formed was that these Bratz dolls had lots of lipstick on, big pouty lips, and really done up makeup, and they had all of these clothes like crop tops and other trendy looks. They had the very young girl image, the very stereotypical young teenage girl image, and so by comparison, Barbie looked like a stereotypical housewife. She looked like a 30-something-year-old doll compared to a Bratz who looked like a teenage doll. And so suddenly, the people who bought Barbie were viewed themselves as buying the uncool doll. This was not one of the cool moms. This was just Barbie. This was the mom doll. And they wanted the Bratz doll. Barbie would come with a kitchen set in her dream house, but Bratz, they would come with big designer purses, they would come with big hairbrushes, they would come with young boyfriends. They were very into fashion and boys and other stereotypical teenage girl interests, so Barbie just suddenly looked older and outdated by comparison. After this eight-year-long lawsuit finished, that was Mattel versus MGA, MGA actually won in 2013, but as we know today, Barbie remains superior in terms of sales and just public awareness of who knows about these dolls. In 2016, Bratz was no longer in the lead of the competition because Barbie came back with Fashionistas, a line of Barbie dolls with those diverse body types, but also tapped into other senses of styles. The Fashionista dolls would be like Sporty Barbie or Punk Barbie or uh, Glamour Barbie. They really added and leaned into different adjectives for how you would describe your sense of fashion and made a whole doll based on that description. So anyway, their new lines of fashion-focused dolls and their body-positive dolls really helped them stay on top when they were about to really face a serious sales threat with Bratz's competition. Because Bratz dolls all do have the same body type, the traditional Barbie body type, and so 
Barbie decided to finally expand who felt seen by Barbie dolls because young teen girls that they were trying to market to saw themselves in Barbie and now they could see themselves in Barbie even more. So if you were a young girl, maybe a preteen at a very impressionable age, and you really wanted to see a doll that made you feel seen and represented, in Barbie maybe you could see that. But then suddenly with Bratz you could see that a lot more because it looked like a doll closer to your age with your interests. But then Barbie made sure that your attention went back to them because you could see yourself in Barbie more again because they suddenly had diverse body types and more Barbies of color. And so that led to, again, your attention going back to feeling like Barbie was a better, a better companion to play with. Overall, over time, Barbie has held over 200 careers. 58 million Barbies are sold annually across 150 countries. And Barbie has over 99% global awareness. So she remains super, super influential and notable around the world. So the best way to sum up Barbie's impact is that it is complicated. It is really complicated not just by legal factors that tainted Mattel's image over time and financial hardship periods and just in general a very uneven growth pattern to follow for investors because of the changing executives and restructures and whatnot, but also because Barbie tapped into a lot of values viewed as just anti-feminist and not promoting a good image for girls to see of themselves. A very limited definition of a beautiful doll and what she should look like. A feud with another girl, the Bratz. A view of there needing to be a schism between Bratz and Barbies. It was a very manufactured feud that formed, kind of unintentionally, but it was there and it had a lasting impact on viewing who would play with what doll and how that would draw lines unnecessarily, creating a competition where there was none previously, just ideologically as well as literally sales competition. The schism formed between who would buy a doll because they wanted to feel empowered compared to who would buy a doll because they liked the cute outfit. On the positive side, of course, she represents limitless potential and possibilities in women and the ability to just change up your look and experiment with that and feel like yourself. And lately now she embodies more body positivity than she did in the past. And so those things are not entirely disconnected. So the best way to sum it up is that the ultimate legacy of Barbie is complicated by schisms. By the presence of brats and other competition in this need, Mattel has always felt to be on top and stay on top. They have perpetuated this view that you are either a Bratz fan or a Barbie fan more, that you, which means then that you are either into buying the doll that will make you feel empowered or into buying the doll that has cute clothes, just by comparison's sake. And so that unfairly makes it seem as girls like you have to pick. Are you the kind of girl that likes to wear cute outfits or the kind of girl who likes to do math? As if those things are mutually exclusive. And so ultimately... What I think is the best way to view Barbie and play with a Barbie doll, or any doll really, is to not feel that competition. You can have your favorite because of whatever reason you want, but it's important to not feel limited like, oh, well this is the old Barbie, or this is the, the, the boring Barbie, or this is the superficial Barbie. Because you can love makeup and math as a girl. You can love science and you can love shopping. These interests are not mutually exclusive, and ultimately a feminist doll 
if it's feminist to you, it comes from the fact that you feel like you can be both, and nothing is excluded from your ability to express yourself. So that's how the dolls, I think, ought to be interpreted. And also, at the end of the day, we always have to remember that any feminist doll is still a, a corporately feminist doll because it's coming out of capitalism. So just some things to think about about how Barbie is impacting people in ways that you can't write off or proclaim as absolutely wonderful either. They're very complicated, especially with the development of brats causing this competition in the mindsets of the buyers as well as actual financial competition. I have another quick toy-related fandom story after the break, and then next week we will continue this discussion even further, unpacking the layers of meaning behind why we buy the toys we do and why whole fandoms have been built around toys. For now, one more quick story after the break. There are two main noteworthy characters in the story of Cabbage Patch Kids and how these dolls came into being. There's Martha Nelson Thomas and Xavier Roberts. The backstory ultimately goes back to 1983, which is considered the big year of the Cabbage Patch Kids frenzy, where everyone wanted to buy one of these cloth dolls with this big plastic head. I know I had one, and I actually had one that was not, that was all kind of plastic, a newer one. Anyway, this is the official description of what it is like to get a Cabbage Patch Kid and what they're supposed to do, what their backstory is supposed to be. Quote, Behind a magic waterfall, a little bunny bee would fly around a cabbage patch and sprinkle magic crystals over an open field. Thus, a cabbage patch kid was born. They are then taken to a babyland general hospital where they are later adopted by small children. So that was ultimately the backstory of how a cabbage patch kid was formed, that a magic bee sprinkled stuff over a cabbage patch and then actual cabbage patch baby heads would pop out of the cabbages and then you could actually go to the store and buy your Cabbage Patch Kid whose head just popped up and say, I want to adopt that one. And then you could like become the official parent of the Cabbage Patch Kid, basically. The creator of this idea, Xavier Roberts, patented it in 1978 and then proceeded to convert a Georgia hospital into this quote-unquote clinic where these babies were born out of cabbages. The dolls were actually in such high demand and people loved this concept so much that once a radio DJ joked that there was going to be a plane of Cabbage Patch Kid dolls flying out of the sky soon. And so fans actually ran outside of their houses and waited for that to happen. They were so excited. The DJ went so far as to say that everyone should go specifically to the Milwaukee County Stadium with a baseball glove at the ready and hold their credit cards up to the sky so that the plane could take pictures of them. Obviously none of that happened, but the DJ really showed how much people were obsessed with buying these Cabbage Patch Kids. Roberts was living the fancy life thanks to this idea. He lived in a mansion, he had over 200 employees working for him, including a chauffeur and limo service and everything. Someone who was not so happy is Martha Nelson Thomas, who accused him of stealing her idea. She had previously designed something called Doll Babies. She had really made them actually with an intent not to sell them wide, widely. She really wanted to just personalize each doll baby that she made by giving it a little handwritten note and making it herself by hand and then giving it to kids. And so by mainstreaming and manufacturing through, a fa through assembly line style, these dolls Suddenly, her core values have been ripped away from her creation. Roberts allegedly bought some of those doll babies from Thomas, and that's when he proceeded to up the price of them and sell them on his own terms. Thomas was really against excessive manufacturing, product mainstreaming, all of that, 
But, of course, Roberts didn't really care, and he eventually got the benefits with the mansion and the limo service and everything. Roberts even sent Thomas a letter basically saying, no matter how hard you try to stop me, I'm sure as heck still going to be making these dolls, and I will sell at least a knockoff version of them for as long as I am able to. Roberts was actually able then to copyright the concept because Thomas never had and never wanted to. So when Thomas was selling these dolls with handmade notes and stuff to kids, she didn't want to get a patent for the idea because she viewed it as hopefully never getting to the point where it was so popular that it would need a patent and copyright protection. She hoped that it would stay a personalized, intimate thing to give these kids these doll babies. But, of course, Roberts had other ideas, and so after he got one, got his hands on one of them, he wanted to take it mainstream, and he did to massive financial results. In 1985, after a long-drawn-out lawsuit, Martha Thomas did actually win out after six years of a trial, but nothing changed, and Xavier Roberts is still viewed as the actual creator of Cabbage Patch Kids. The company under Roberts ended up actually filing for bankruptcy in 1988, though, and then the brand was bought by Hasbro, who still makes Cabbage Patch Kids to this day, as well as Cabbage Patch Minis and other Cabbage Patch Kid-themed toys that are still very popular, although the actual baby hospital concept is not what it once was. That is a very interesting story, and I think there are a lot more of those than we think of someone who actually was the real creator of a favorite toy, but never got the credit. So those are interesting stories worth seeking out. And more of those related stories are coming on the next toy-themed episode of How to Stan, which will be in a few weeks because next week I have an interview to post. More on that later, but stay tuned. Lots more from the show. This is just an intro to the toys that really have shaped our childhoods, and then we'll unpack more of what this all means and why people are such big fans of these toys later. So thank you for listening to part one, and I will see you next time.